0: No, I was tr- I was trying to figure out who did the cricket earlier. That was great. The chairs are getting farther away. It just means that I'm going to move closer. I got you, I got you. Whew, it's hot. All right. I was wondering how many people would brave it. How many of you are from originally born and bred SoCal and you're freaked out right now by what's going on outside right now? Some of you are just freaked out, right? It's nice out. Come on, it's good. Might get a li- it might be a, like green for like three days. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> Who skis or snowboards, though? It's like, that's all you think about. You see rain, you're like snow. There's snow somewhere. I smell it. I haven't been snowboarding in a long time, but I'm starting back up this year, so I'm super pumped. Maybe we should do, Jackie, we should do like a thing. I just thought about that, right? You're like, let's go bowling. Why? Because Jackie's really good at bowling, right? We should should do like a Saturday or something like that. We We can fit like 86 people in my minivan, and then we'll just truck it up to Big Bear or something. Yeah, mini, I'm telling you, minivans are dope. You laugh now, you'll drive one someday, I'm telling you. You will. Or if you have kids, we've had some friends that had like an Acura SUV, and they were like, cool minivan, Mark. Then we went on a road trip, and they're like, can we take your van? And then they uh, they bought a van when they got back. No joke, true story. They bought the exact same van as us, sold their Acura SUV, because it doesn't work. So if you're new, awkward intro, right? Hey, name's Mark, one of the pastors here. Um Matt would love to get you a Bible if you, have a, if you need a Bible. You don't even have one on your phone because you're just that lazy and forgetful. Um, just kidding. So Matt will get you. Anyone else need a Bible? Just, just one? Just one? <clears throat> so check this out. I have to start with a huge confession. My, my bad. <laughs> Open up to chapter 8 of Hebrews. All the nerds are like, wait a minute. My notes ended with 6. Do you want me to explain myself, or you just want to move on? All the type A's demand a response, don't you? It was 3.45 this afternoon, as I was looking up—sermon was basically done—as I was looking up concurring verses for the study, as I'm looking up—you know, I mean, I I literally use, like, Google to search the Bible— um, cause I'll type in the idea or at least kind of what I know from the verse and then it'll always pop up. I'm like, oh, there's my reference. It's super easy to be lazy Christian these days. It's awesome. Um, my poor dad was a pastor for 40 years back in the day. He would have like books and he had to look up commentaries and he had cassette tapes that he would fast forward and rewind and all sorts of stuff. I'm just like, I'm done. I can tell you anything about the Bible in about eight seconds. But, um, it was 345. I know it exactly cause I looked at my phone to, to text Zach And I I was looking up concurring verses, and I found, I was like, what's this idea about like this assurance that we have in Jesus as the high priest? I look it up, I look up the concept, I'm like, oh, Hebrews 7.22, perfect. Wait a minute, we didn't do Hebrews 7 last week. I've completely prepared a sermon on Hebrews 8 until 3.45, and so we're going to kind of hop over 7, Zach like, was so good. Like, he's not here tonight. He was like, bro, I'll just get it next week. I'm like, that's weird. And like the, the hardcore Calvary people are like, you no, you can't do it that way. It has to be verse by verse, chapter by chapter. So we're just going to, I'm going to kind of give a summary. I'm sorry. I just apologize. If you were hoping for a better pastor, chapter eight is about how you have a better priest. So get over it. Okay. And so um, we're going to be in chapter eight of Hebrews. I'll, I will give you just the flyover, like the 140,000 foot view of chapter seven super, super fast, but um, we're going to be in chapter eight. Maybe it was my mistake. Maybe it was in God's sovereignty. He knew that some of you were going to skip next week and you needed to hear eight. So we're just going to do that. Sound good? Some of you don't like how I push off blame on the Holy Spirit, but oh well. (laughs) Don't blame him for your mistake. (laughs) So I'm going to pray. Clearly I need it, as you can see, and then we will get started in Hebrews. Jesus just, um, I joke, but um, I'm serious. I, I'm, ex- I'm excited about this chapter. I, I do love Selfishly. I do love chapter 8. Um, I love that you say that you'll work all things together for good. And so even in my misstep, um, you're going to be sovereign over tonight. You're going to be sovereign in the hearts of your kids. You're going to encourage and love on kids in the ways that, that, that we didn't expect, myself included. And so we just thank you for this, this study ahead of time. We thank you for what you're going to do. Um, we thank you for the promise that we have in you. We thank you that things have changed. We don't often say that much in the church because we're trying to hold on to the, thing, the way things were. But this is one of those times where I just want to thank you that things changed. And so we pray that you would be glorified. Pray that all of us here would have the hearts open to be edified. Um, Jesus, we we want to see you high and lifted up, and so I pray today would, would inch us one, one step closer to you in our faith um, and, and see you again as, as more high and mighty as our great high priest. So Jesus, we love you. Can't wait to see you again. In Jesus' name, amen. So chapter 7, as we're going to glaze over, sets up essentially this. It sets up the high priest Melchizedek, who was also a king. If you remember at the end of last week, that's how that chapter ends. And again, we know that there weren't chapters when the Bible was originally written. And so it ends by the order of Melchizedek. Okay. And so where he's continuing this thought goes into this order of Melchizedek. Um, You can read chapter seven. You certainly should, right? You shouldn't rely on us necessarily um, to, to constantly be doing all the homework. And so if you want to get into a deep study of chapter seven, you're like, you failed at your job. Cool. Don't fail at yours then this week. Sound good? See so how I turn that around? Some of you aren't happy. You won't be back next week, but you need to hear it at eight tonight, okay? And so, do your study through seven. The author, essentially, we don't know the author, or we don't know who wrote Hebrews, but we do know who authored it. We do know that God himself authored scripture, all right? But he, he basically, he argues that there was this priest, Melchizedek, and he's a, he's a great dude. He was a king, okay? He didn't come from the Levites, which is where the priestly order came from. The big idea is this. The big idea is this is that you don't have to, essentially Melchizedek was a priest because God called him to be a priest. Because the people would say, well, he didn't come from the genealogies. And the Bible says he has no genealogy. They don't know he was referenced, I think once in Genesis, once in Psalm. That's it. Like if you blink, you miss Melchizedek. He's gone, he's there. the Bible says he's a priest. Why? Because God called him to be a priest. Some people are like, well, he's not from Levi. And his parents didn't with the thing. And we don't see the order through the genealogy. And God says he's a priest. Why? Because I called him to be a priest. And so he sets up this order of Melchizedek, but he says that there's a need beginning in verse 11. He says that there's a need for a new priesthood. So he sets up the priesthood. He says it's about who God has called to be the great high priest because he's, he's leading into what is our chapter eight, where he's going to set up this term high priest, which is a very potent term for the Jews. Very potent. That was the one guy who one time a year could go into that one place in the tabernacle and be in the presence of God. That one guy, one time a year, could go into the presence of God and make sacrifices in the presence of God for the sins of the people. And we know that that couldn't atone for the sins, but that the bloodshed in the Old Testament was there to cover the sins and as a foreshadow of the blood that would be shed on behalf of all sin. And so he sets up that Melchizedek, according to this order of Melchizedek, who was called by God to be a priest, though he didn't come from the tribe of Levi, was called by God to be a priest, but that there was a need for a new priesthood. There was a need for a better priesthood. And I started to think, I was thinking this week, how much myself, all of us included, we spend, especially as Americans, I think, especially as Americans, we are constantly in search of better, aren't we? I've got a short list of like 4,000 examples. We're going to go through them. We'll end by midnight. Don't worry. Okay? Okay. We're constantly in search of better. And look, I'm not going to say that this is always wrong. But what happens is that mentality often blends into areas of life where it is inappropriate. And so for this author to very boldly proclaim that there's something better than that one guy who can enter the presence of God once a year. He says we're headed towards something better and we do this a lot. We want better of everything. Again, not all of these are necessarily bad, but I want us to kind of understand that, that, that feeling of, of, of constantly wanting better. We constantly want more. I think of grades. We want better grades, right? And that's okay. Again, it's not wrong. We want better and we're working and we're, we're let down if we don't get them. The grades we want, we want better. We're striving harder. We're bigger. If you're in high school or college or post-grad, like it's about grades. It's what you're being judged on, right? Now people are like, well, you had good intentions. Well, doesn't change your D, right? I was really into it. You're being judged. Why? You want better grades to get a better job so you have a better career, so you can get a better paycheck, so you get a better house, so you get a better car, so you can have a better phone with better apps, right? You want better hobbies. Want better Friendships. You want better relationships. Divorce rate is at like half. Why? Because people are like, I could do better. It's not a covenant. It's a promise. It's figuring stuff out. And if it doesn't work out, balance. want better marriages, better food, better drink. Not bad things, but we've got a foodie culture, right? We spend more on meals than people have in a month. I've been to Haiti, the most impoverished country on the Southern Hemisphere. Those guys, I mean, they honestly, I've got friends that still, I mean, they can live on five bucks a month. You spend eight on Jamba Juice. Better food, better drink. Like we just, we just, we want better. We want to try different and better and more. Hobbies, as I said, clothes, phones, apps, cars, house, paycheck, jobs, grades, relationships. And then we look for the ways to control the outcome. How can I get X, Y, and Z? I I want better. I deserve better. I've, I've come to a place in my life where I should have better. I should have more of this. I want better. I want better. I want better. And I'm here to tell you tonight that better is here. That better has come. The best. There will be nothing better beyond this. And keep in mind, so last week we were in six, right? And we talked about Jesus being the anchor. And, and that's that big, hotly contested chapter where everyone's like, oh, it says you can't make it back to Jesus, and that's, that, we sorted through that. It's not what the, that's not what the author was saying. He's saying if you turn from Jesus and look for salvation anywhere else, it's impossible. It's not saying that once you've turned from Jesus, you can't turn back to Jesus. He's not saying that. That's not consistent with the rest of Scripture. You always weigh those issues in the weight of Scripture. And so he's saying, look, if you, if you look elsewhere— It's impossible to find salvation. And so in 8, he's coming into, to be honest, at the end of 7, in in verse 20 of chapter 7, where where he starts this idea, he's saying if you're looking for better priestly service, if you're looking for a, a, a better mediator, if you're looking for a better promise, if you're looking for a better anything, it's already here doesn't mean that we don't work and that, that I don't want to work up and, and become better at my job and that I don't want to provide. Cause we don't, we don't like, we don't ask for like below average, do we? I, I got three kids. I'm like, man, I hope they just have like average their whole life. Like we want, like, I'm like, whatever I had and two notches down, you know, like we don't strive to have average things in America. We want better things, more things, ascend to things. But when it comes to this and our ability to control the outcome, It's already here, and it's already done. Your faith is locked, signed, and sealed if you're in Christ. Your salvation is locked, signed, and sealed if you're in Christ. The Bible says, he who's in the Father's hand, no man can remove, which would seem a contradiction to the people that think you can't turn back to Jesus, as we took a look at last week. The Bible says, he who's in the hand of the Father, no man can remove. but you got to remember he's speaking to the Jews he's speaking to Hebrews of all different sorts some that were in the faith some that were outside the faith some that were in the faith and were sliding back out of the faith and he's saying again as we talked about last week if you want to slide back into as chapter 6 declared some of your ceremonial washings some of your ceremonial sacrifices he says you're rendering the cross useless you're putting Jesus to open shame That that his sacrifice on the cross wasn't enough and I'll tell you this, this is the way that it plays out in our own roles. we we're kind of like, man, Jews, a weird mentality. It's crazy. I never wanted to slaughter goats. Like I was happy I didn't have to do that. I'm stoked on bacon. I'm fine. Forget this. I don't know why the Jews would want to go back to that. Right? But for some of us, the way I see it play out the most, to be honest, the way I see it play out the most is when Christians constantly and consistently, that's why I, I tend to harp on this quite a bit, believe that Jesus is punishing you that God is punishing you for your sin. Don't get me wrong. The Bible says that he chastens those he loves. It means to discipline. It's different than punishment. The Bible says sin will find you out. Things are going to happen in the world where your sin catches up with you. That's different than punishment. But what we do is... is we, we, we constantly, whether we know it or not, you've probably never said these words, but we constantly, when we believe, when we ask friends, when we talk to pastors and say, I just don't know why God is doing this. He's, you know, clearly I've done something. I've, I've been wrong in the past. Now I'm, I'm reaping what I sow. What we're doing is we're saying that the cross wasn't sufficient punishment for your sin. Therefore, what you've done, God has to respond to with even more. It's it's nowhere in the New Testament, by the way. It's nowhere. Some of you are like, why was God so angry in the Old Testament? And all of a sudden it's like nothing. It's almost like something changed. It's almost like wrath was absorbed. It's almost like anger was quenched. But when you believe, when you bring into your life, into your faith this idea that if, if I do something wrong, God's gonna punish me. You're saying that he wasn't Sufficient in his punishment of Jesus on the cross. Stop. Sin will find you out for sure. Should I continue in sin so that grace may abound? No, of course not. But God's not punishing you. Take comfort in that. Why? He already punished Jesus for you. As your sin. He says, if you're going anywhere else looking for priestly mediation, He says, it's already here. It's in Jesus. So no surprise if you've been coming for one week or forty-seven, we're going to point you to Jesus tonight—a greater priest, a higher priest, a superior priest—and so he says this in chapter eight. I'm telling you, better is here, and it says this. Now, this is the main point. Now, how many of you have asked yourself, like, well, what's the main point? Of the, what's the chapter, Pastor? What's the main point? I love this chapter. You're like, what's the, what's the, what's the big idea? Let's go with the main point, right? Sometimes Bible's not rocket science, okay? Hey, what's the the main point of this whole thing, pastor? Uh, The main point of the things we are saying, we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. They're like, okay, so like what next? That's the main point. That's the main point. How do you know? It says that's the main point. Stop saying main point, I get it. I love that. So you make the Bible way more complicated, right? And he's writing this as one long letter. This is this is why it's a constant theme with the author. This is why he's constantly referencing this. And right about smack dab in the middle, he's like, "This is the big idea that we have a high priest." What does that mean? What did that mean for the Jews? What does that mean for you? What it meant for the Jews was that their daily repetition, their weekly repetition, their monthly repetition, their yearly repetition of bringing animals to the priest, confessing their sin, having the priest take the unblemished animal onto the altar, sacrificing the animal. The Bible says that from the temple, blood flowed consistently and constantly day and night. As you leave today, you're going to drive by little washes. You're going to drive by a little ditch where the water is racing to the low point. And then it was the same with blood. There was that stream through town that everyone would kind of have to hop over as they went. And it came out from behind the temple and it sought lower ground and it ran consistently. This constant reminder that every single day we commit cosmic treason against God. He says, but this is the main point. Now you have a high priest who is seated in heaven. This was a big deal because in the tabernacle, in the temple, you can go there in the ruins. Now look, they knew how to create seats. They did it for the public bathrooms. They knew how to create seats that lasted thousands of years. They made them on a stone. You walk into any ruins of the synagogues, the temples, the tabernacles, they had none. Nowhere to sit. Why? There wasn't time. Why? Because too many people were bringing their sins. And the priest had to go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. There wasn't time to sit down. And he kicks off and says, this is the main point, which is why I'm going to end the sermon with this point again. Is he says, Jesus sits down. Why? completed they'd never even thought about that they'd never even comprehended that that's what it meant to the jews you mean once for all time forever no more repetition no it's complete he sat down he came and got your sin he came and absorbed your sin on the cross he came and became your sin on the cross and then he dropped it off in hell And he says this is the main point that he sat down on the throne. Jesus rested. Verse 2, it says, A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. Now there is a difference between temple and tabernacle. I looked it up this week. Temple had been created by Herod. Right? Dirty man, corrupt man. It was made by Jews. It was also made by pagans. The tabernacle, however, was made only by Jews and only for Jews. We're we're getting tighter in a scope when he says tabernacle instead of simply temple. And he says, a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. Now, some people think that this is the church, that we are the true tabernacle. Some people think that it's Jesus's physical body, his glorified body, which he currently has in heaven, which still bears the mark from the crucifixion. So there's still some physical elements remaining from earth. But as we're gonna see in the rest of the passage, I don't think that's accurate. I simply think that what it means is the true tabernacle is the heavenly reality. The heavenly reality of Christ on his throne because keep in mind, heaven is going to come to earth. It's not that we float away and get a harp and a cloud and we get to leave all things physical. The Bible actually declares that the new Jerusalem comes to earth, that God restores all of earth, and we see that heaven, the reality of heaven, becomes the reality on earth. I'll, I'll, I'll read a little bit more. Maybe that'll make more sense because he talks about how the, the tabernacle was but a shadow here of that reality. And so I don't think he's talking about the church necessarily. It's not a bag on us. I don't think he's talking about Jesus' glorified body. It's not a bag on him. I just think he means that the true tabernacle is the scene that is set up today right now in heaven with King Jesus on his throne. And he's alive, by the way. I tell you, this trips me out. He, he hears He hears, he's listening now. He's listening to the thoughts of your heart. He's listening to the thoughts of your mind. He's thinking, he's listening to us. He's able to be all places at all times. He's here, he's listening. That's the reality. This this priest that knows every hair on your head that has every tear you've ever cried in a bottle. That's the high priest that we talk of who has an eternal ministry and that's what he's gonna get into. Because keep in mind, every time the priests change over, the rules changed for the Jews. Every time the priest changed over, the rules changed. The word of God didn't change, but all the laws that they were able to stack up on top of that would change. Some of them didn't feel like this. Some of them didn't feel like that. And they would stick to their own traditions over those traditions, depended on the region, depended on the priest. The author's saying what you need is that one higher, consistent, eternal ministry that doesn't change. He was the same for your grandparents as he was for your great 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 grandparents he's the same as he was in the first century he's the same today that's a more high ministry that's a higher more superior ministry so this is this true tabernacle of which the Lord erected And not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. That's what he was appointed to do. The priest's job was to to give gifts before God and to offer sacrifices before God on behalf of the sins of the people. On behalf of the sins of the people. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. See, Jesus never offered a sacrifice based on mosaic law based on sacrificial law in fact I have from previous study I have at the top of this chapter it says Jesus fulfills ceremonial and priestly law and when you read through the Old Testament and you take a look at hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, and hundreds of laws and, and your, your, maybe your non-Christian friends or, or secularists or professors have said well you pick and choose don't you? Why is homosexuality still a sin? Because the Old Testament says so, but you get to mix fabrics with your clothes, which the Bible in the Old Testament says is a sin. You can't mix polyester and cotton. It's considered a sin by Levitical law. Pretty close to where it says homosexuality is, is a sin. So why are you picking and choosing? Real fast, there's three types of laws in the Old Testament. Civil, ceremonial, and moral. Civil was God instituting law Protecting the nation of Israel setting them apart as an actual established government we confuse government and nation a lot God set Israel apart as a nation as an actual theocracy so he set up the laws by which that nation would reflect his nature even down to how you sued people he set that up but you need to know when Jesus came and became king over all, he said that those laws are no longer in effect. They're not in effect. I don't know if you know this, but we don't live in a theocracy. Despite all the weird debates you've had with your professors, right? You just want a theocracy. No, not really. We don't. We don't live in a theocracy. God allows for it. He has always allowed for other types of government, different types of government. But with the nation of Israel, he set up these laws that would set them apart. And they did. And they came forward, and then King Jesus came and said, I've fulfilled all those laws. You are now no longer defined as God's people by the nation you live in, the heritage, your race, your laws, the type of government system, the type of punishments. That's not how God's people are defined anymore. They're defined by those who are in Jesus. So if you live in Indonesia and you're in Jesus, welcome to the church. If you live in America and you're in Jesus, welcome to the church. If you're in China, currently the fastest growing Christian church on the planet If you're in Jesus, welcome to the church. Welcome to God's people. It's no longer our borders, our government, our system. It's not Israel anymore. We're now in Christ. The second type was ceremonial. The third type was moral. I'll do moral real fast. Moral law is like the Ten Commandments. How many of you have thought like, well, we don't really subscribe to the Old Testament, but like the the Ten Commandments we still do, right? That's where God says... These are the laws that reflect my nature. And when I come, I won't be able to break those. I won't break those. Jesus came and he was perfect and he was holy and he was blameless and he never stole and he never cursed and he never was angry without reason. He was the exact reflection of God on earth. So we know that those continue to be true. Why? Because God doesn't change. His covenant with Israel, right? As the nation of Israel, was fulfilled in Jesus. When Jesus came, he fulfilled the moral law by showing us that he is God by holding to the moral law perfectly. And they still continue. Why? Because God's perfect law still continues. But in the ceremonial, this is the other one that has been discarded, if you will, because these were the sacrificial, ceremonial, priestly laws that God said, okay, so the government operates like this. Now I want the synagogue, the the temple and the church to run like this. I want you to bring sacrifice. I want you to, you to, to kill animals on behalf of the sin. And that pointed forward to the great high priest who was coming. And Jesus comes and in this chapter. He says, he's here. Therefore, as a pastor, I don't have to, you don't have to bring animals to me. That's why we don't adhere to those. So we no longer adhere to civil law in the Old Testament. We no longer adhere to ceremonial, sacrificial priestly law, like the priestly washings and cleansing ceremonies and who they can and can't touch. We don't have, yeah, you guys pick and choose. No, the rules changed. You're saying the rules change? Yes. And it's better now. Yes. Hear me. Christians, don't be afraid when they're like, you guys seem to have changed the rules. Old Testament, New Testament. We didn't change them. God did. And I'm excited about it. Have you read the Old Testament? It's a bloody mess. It's crazy. And God was angry. Kill people for trying to stop a covenant, like an ark from falling. Civil and ceremonial law. Yes. Fulfilled. Not abolish. Jesus says, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And the moral law, the laws that reflect Jesus's, God's character and his nature, Jesus came and he fulfilled those by showing us that's exactly who he was. He was God because he's the only one that could keep those perfectly. And those live on. And this is the chapter where we see the ceremonial and the priestly laws have been fulfilled. We have a great high priest now with an eternal ministry This is how it affects you. That was how it affected them. That's how it sounded to them. But what you need to hear is that you have access to Christ himself on a throne. It doesn't mean that you don't come for pastoral authority or pastoral counseling. It doesn't mean that you're not supposed to be in small groups. Don't become one of those. It's just me and Jesus and I don't need church. Well, if you're with Jesus, he's the one that's going to tell you to go to church, right? The Holy Spirit's the one that adds people to the church. Americans are the only ones that say we don't need the church, right? Missionaries who don't have a church, what are they desperately begging for, an actual church? So we're like, oh, I've just got my relationship with Jesus. Well, if you have a relationship with Jesus, you would love and serve the church. Why? Because Jesus loved and served the church. But we, you have access to a higher priest. Zach and I will never, never be able to provide for you the way he can. Never be able to provide for you the way he can. So we will constantly, again, not, not displacing our own role that God has put over our lives, but we will constantly use our role to point you to him and impress upon you that you go to him first, you go to him last, that he will satisfy your every desire, that he will be better for you than I could ever. And that's what the author's saying. He's like, why would you want to go back to religiosity? You have something better now. You have an eternal ministry. This is better. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest. This is interesting. And he wasn't, by the way. Right? Was Jesus a high priest? No, he became a rabbi, a teacher. But was he a priest? No. In fact, he sat in the synagogue and listened. He grew up going to church. He was a carpenter. He worked. He worked. Since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, see, Jesus came and in his life was fulfilling the need for that. Therefore, he didn't need to perform it. In verse 5, it says, Who serve the copy and shadow of heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. The copy. In Exodus chapter 25, we see, this is why I think this is what he's talking about with the tabernacle. The tabernacle was literally, it was literally designed as it was pictured in heaven. It was literally designed. If you take a look at Exodus chapter 25, we won't go through the whole chapter, I'll give you the last verse. God shows them how to make the tabernacle. Why? To reflect the heavenly reality of the true tabernacle, which is in heaven. And that whole chapter ends like this. Verse 40, it says, and see to it that you make them, that's all the things, it's all the details, it's all the lamps, it's all the incest, it's all the way everything was positioned. He says, and see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. They had a vision of heaven. He says, construct a tabernacle, make it as the reality in heaven as your best. This is the copy on earth. Stamped with an image of the reality in heaven make the tabernacle as it is in heaven. <clears throat> he says, so make a copy and a shadow. And then the priests come in as the shadow. See, the Old Testament wasn't about them. It was that they were foreshadowing Jesus coming and fulfilling the work that they performed. So the tabernacle was literally the copy and the shadow was then the role of the priests was to be a shadow. But what do you need in order to have a shadow? Super cheesy. Come on, someone say it. The sun. Right? (laughs) I see what you switched the letter. I get it. Right? But you have to have a bright light in order to have a shadow, yes? The priests of the Old Testament were not the light. Right? They were but the shadow being cast on the earth from the light. The whole Bible's about Jesus. The entirety of the Old Testament was pointing forward to Jesus the civil law pointing forward to the coming king, the ceremonial law coming, pointing to the coming sacrifice, the priestly law coming to the, the, the coming priest, even the moral law to the perfect and holy God that would come to earth to be with his people as he always promises to do. And so here we see the copy and we see the shadow. the copy in the shadow of heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he said and he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, and this is where he quotes, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry. A more excellent ministry. You see, no earthly, priestly ministry could take sin away. Some of you have perhaps been trying to perform this on your own. You've been trying to go one for one with God. You've been trying to, you say, I've sinned, therefore now it requires what? Good deed X. Maybe I'll do two to try to overcome one. You believe God's punishing you, so you course correct and go out in good works. You try to put the ratio on your side. You believe that God's punishing you for things, rendering the cross useless. If God didn't satisfy his wrath on the cross, you think maybe he needs more for me. No earthly sacrifice could take away sin. It says this, Hebrews 10 4, which we'll get to. Heck, if, maybe next week if I skip 9. We'll see. He says, for it is not possible in Hebrews 10, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. See, some of you read the Old Testament, you're like, okay, that's how they dealt with sin. No, that's how they covered sin. But it never took it away. Some of you have just simply been covering your sin. You haven't been allowing Jesus to actually take it away. You've been bringing it in every week and you wanna hear a good sermon, you feel good, and it just all goes downhill. You notice that? Notice you're like destroyed by like Monday morning. <laughs> Anyone else? feel great until tomorrow, right? Anyone else? You start becoming hyper aware. And look, it's, it's good to be broken and humble. But a lot of us, I, I think a lot of us, myself included, grow up certainly well past my college years, to be honest, trying to take care of sin, but then constantly feeling like I still had it on my back because I'm trying to cover My sin. With actions, with good deeds, with prayer With going to church Mom and dad, I did some good things Right? So I'm trying to cover the bad things I did in private And we don't allow Jesus, a greater high priest To actually take away our sin Does it mean you're going to be sinless? No, by the grace of God, but you will sin less But that we drop See, The Bible says that it's his kindness That leads you to repentance It's not his punishment it's his kindness that leads you to repentance. That, yeah, we continue to sin, and he still says, I love you. It's like my kids. I didn't understand that till I had kids. I didn't. They can do whatever. They'll, they'll, they'll be corrected. They'll be chastened for sure. But, man, it's like as soon as it's over, it's over. Like, I have no record of wrong with my kids. I don't remember what they've done wrong. I've, I'm serious. And I have a, a type A like sickness when people wrong me I can remember exactly what you said where it was how you said it the tone the inflection the date the time the email I can remember everything but with my kids I'm like I have no clue even what just happened are we good let's go back to playing soccer and God looks at you and says, I, I don't, he doesn't keep a record of wrongs this is going to cast your sin as far as the east is from the west have you ever noticed that Pastor Rob says this all the time if you go north long enough eventually you're going south but if you go east you'll never reach west it's not that God literally re- forgets, he knows everything. But he says it's as if you've never sinned. Why? Cuz you're in Christ and he sees perfection. So it says that the blood of goats and bulls could never take away sin. Some of you come here tonight, perhaps you just haven't simply and humbly accepted the fact that Jesus can remove your sin. And maybe that's been a block cuz you've been trying to fix it on your own. You want to get better, before you come to him. Not realizing that he's better because he came to you. He came to you and wait for you to bring your sins to the altar and drop off your goat. He came to you and he grabbed you and he gripped you and he cares for you regardless. This is a covenant of grace, not a covenant of works. And it's better. I love this chapter. Why? Because it says better. You guys have heard me say that. I'm like, it's better now. Because of this chapter, because of what Jesus has done, it is better. The covenant under Christ is better than the Old Testament. It's better than that covenant. So it's a better covenant. It says, a better covenant, continuing in verse six, which was established on better promises. On better promises. God has unleashed a flood of grace he gives grace and grace by definition is where it's not deserved he's not waiting for good things to give you good things he gives you good things though we a lot of times just give him back bad things how does he compat bad things with more good things and he pours out and he wants to rem- he wants we we grip like he's he's already conquered sin and death and we actually hold on to our sin We actually like stay at home with it. And I got to wrestle through this. Jesus says, no, you don't. I already wrestled through it. I mean, the Bible says he literally went into the grave. He went down into hell. He went that far deep as your sin. He came out glorified because the grave couldn't hold him because the grave was created for sinners. And it says better promises We we talked about this last week, right? The Bible's a book of hundreds of laws, for sure. But thousands of promises. And they're better. It's not the promise of your sin will be covered for if X, Y, and Z occur. It's that your sin's already been taken care of. Why are you still holding on to it? Release it. Let Jesus come to a higher priest. Let Jesus tonight cleanse you. I remember sitting right over there a couple years ago with a guy who had gotten his girlfriend pregnant. A guy, not a girl. I've said this to girls too. She wasn't there. She wasn't coming. He'd been dealing with this week after week after week after week after week. And don't get me wrong. Unwed pregnancy is not a sin. It may have been, it may have been a sin that led to it, but unwed pregnancy is not a sin in and of itself. You're not sinning with an with a unwed okay, child inside you. Does that make sense? I want to be very clear about that. Okay. There may have been a sin that led to that, but being unwed and pregnant is not in and of itself a sin. But but he sat here, and he finally broke after weeks and weeks and weeks. And I remember I had no clue what to say, except this. I said, you know you're clean, right? Because he felt dirty. You could just see it. Some of you right now, you feel dirty, so you want to hear something, you want to do something. You want to go to church. You want to pray, read your Bible because you think that scrubs it off. I'm here to tell you that in Christ, you're clean. You're holy. You're spotless. You're blameless. And it's a, it's a tough juxtaposition because we're still on earth and we're still wrestling with our sin. But God lavishes grace. You can feel clean. Some of you just need to hear that tonight. You can feel clean in Christ. In Christ. In and of our flesh dwells no good thing, but in Christ you are clean. That's a better promise than do this so that your sin will be covered. It's that you can actually experience relief on this earth. Now, it's been taken care of. A better covenant, a more excellent ministry, a better covenant established on better Promises And check this out. He gets a little aggressive. He says, for if it, because if you had any questions about it, it says fourth, verse seven, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Something was missing from the old covenant. And you can read it, it's, it's interesting because we think Old Testament, New Testament, which is true, and I often talk about Old Covenant, New Covenant, which is true, Testament in the original language actually means covenant, means promise. And so you can literally look at the Old Testament as the Old Covenant under old promises, the New Testament is New Covenant, new promises, you don't have to go into some deep theological study to understand, just there's a massive divide, 400 years of silence, massive divide between the promises of the old and the promises of the new. And he says, what we have now, as I began, guys, better is here. A better priest, a better covenant, a more excellent ministry on better promises. And he says, if the other one was perfect, there'd be no need for a second. Now, some of you are analytical. You're like, did you just say God made a mistake? No, no. But what God has always been doing is working one consistent, cohesive, propulsive story. In fact, if you take a look, well, technically Hebrews 13 talks about an eternal covenant that's been going on since before time and will continue between the members of, of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that made it possible for salvation to come to us. Essentially what we're gonna see in Hebrews 13, I don't know if we'll, we'll actually park there at any time, but you need to know what it says, before time even began, The Trinity determined that man would be able to be saved. I know it's like stretch your brain, right? It's like a wrinkle was just created in the back. You're like, say that again. I don't get it. It's tough. But before time was even conceptualized, brought, the the Trinity itself said there will be a plan. There will be a plan. God knew in his foresight. He knew that we would sin against him. He knew that Adam and Eve would sin against him. Doesn't get him off the hook, but he knew. So, there's this eternal covenant that says there will always be a way out. There will always be a way to salvation for mankind. But then you go through the Old Testament. There was the Abrahamic covenant. There was the Mosaic covenant. There was the Davidic covenant. And it's not that God made a mistake and didn't get it right the first time and had to go through several phases. It's that this, I'm telling you, this is not 66 books. It's one book, 66 chapters. One book, 66 chapters from creation to rebellion to the crucifixion all the way to the consummation and revelation. He's been telling one grand story, one tale of good news, one gospel. And he says, finally, they had gone through these covenants and he says, finally, the old one had fault or else there wouldn't be need for a new. And he says, the new is here and it's better. That you don't have to bring, though again, confession is great, though we don't take it as seriously maybe as some of your Catholic friends and family, okay? Because I, guess what? I don't mediate anymore between your relationship with Jesus. I don't mediate. You don't need me to mediate that relationship. You go right to the great high priest. Again, not knocking off pastoral ministry, pastoral counseling, pastoral authority, by any means. But you have access to the great high priest seated. Why? Because the work's complete. And so it says, so if the first covenant had been faultless, look, if it was perfect, there'd be no place for us to have sought a second one. Because finding fault with them, he says, and then he quotes Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. This is where I just want to like find my, my closest Jewish friend and then just like hug him and then just like squeeze him a little tighter. Like this has always been in the book. Like this has always been part of the plan. I think at the time of the writing, the Bible was 25% prophetic. God was always telling a story that continued. It's not contradictory. I've used this analogy before. If you open up a novel and in chapter one, the main character is 15 and eight chapters later, he's had two birthdays and he turns 17. Is that a contradiction? No. So people looked. they're like, look, it says he was 15 and over here it says he was 17. Which one is it? It's both. Well, what happened? Did you read the story? but it says he's 15. Then he says he was 17. Contradiction. He's had two birthdays. Genius. That's the guy I talk with in my analogies. <laughs> I haven't named him yet. Probably like Rick or something. <laughs> you know, Rick. He's had two birthdays, right? People are like, oh, but in the old, look in the Old Testament, it says this, and then you get over here, and it says this. It's a contradiction. Did you read the story? Oh, the rules have changed? Yes. Aren't you excited? I'm freaking pumped on that. I don't know how you're not pumped. <laughs> I'm super excited. I don't have to kill goats. Right? God's been telling one story. He's been, this, this whole redemptive plan has been unfolding. And it's not over, by the way. It's not over. Some of you think that we're in a holding pattern right now. The gospel is still unfolding. And so he quotes Jeremiah 31. Why? He's just like a good pastor. He's going to show you that this is where God's always been going. So again, if you want to look it up, that's where you want to get your Jewish friends and be like, hey, what about Jeremiah 31? Right? There, and there's, look, there's a reason that, look, and I'm not, I'm not bagging on them by any means, but there's a reasons that you will never find Isaiah 53 taught in a temple. And by the way, it's the, it's the Old Testament book. I've seen it in person, still perfectly preserved. And I think God just has a sense of humor about that. Because chapter 53 has Jesus written all over it. You can't get around it, so they simply go around it. They won't teach it. And so he quotes, he says, look, behold, And he's quoting Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, if you're taking notes. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. The days are coming. That means there's something still more. You just want to tell your Jewish friends, like, so what was that? Like, when he talks about this, what came, right? Well, we don't know. We're still waiting. You know, like, and the temple is destroyed, by the way. So even if the Messiah came and it wasn't Jesus, they would have no way of verifying the record. Anyway, that's a side note. And so he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. You want to ask your friends, like, so what's that new covenant? What's the new covenant? He says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. See, it wasn't just about Israel anymore. It's more encompassing. The covenant gets wider. It gets more vast. That's why you can be a Christian in Indonesia, which is the highest population of Muslims, the highest percentage of Muslims. That's why you can be a Christian. That's why we can be a Christian, though I imagine none of us are Jewish by heritage. It's not about being an American. It's about being in Christ. And if you're in Christ, welcome to God's people. And so he says, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, know the Lord, for all shall know me. See, this is why if you take this and and some other scriptures like Romans 1, there's actually no such thing as an atheist. God says, I've accounted for that. All will know that I'm God. Some will just simply choose not to talk about it. There are no atheists, according to scripture. There is no one that doesn't actually believe in God. There are those who are certainly actively protesting the idea of it, but God says, I've put it in their heart. They know. That's why none can stand before him and say, I just didn't understand. He says, "No, you did. I made sure of that. You chose rebellion. None of them shall teach his neighbor, none his brother saying know the Lord. For all of them shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. In that he says, a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete, obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And I want to jump over if you want to do it with me. I want to go back to this part about the priest standing cuz what he said was the main point was at the beginning and he began the chapter by saying now this is the main point of the things we are saying. So, I would be silly as a pastor to believe I'm going to come up with a better conclusion than this, right? Like if you don't like this is the punchline of the sermon, don't 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 look at me. You've got an issue with what God said. This is the big idea. Right? He says, now this is the main point of the things which we are saying, that we all have such a high priest, that's Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Look at chapter 10, verse 11. Actually, just flip over there. Just do it. Just do it. It takes two seconds if you even have to turn a page. I want you to just see the words. It says, and every priest stands. Every priest in the Old Testament stood. They didn't get to sit. Why? It's too much work to be done. There were too many sins that were being brought to the temple. There were were too many animals that had to be slaughtered on behalf of the sins of the people. He says, and every priest stands ministering daily. This is part of their call. I'm not knocking it. God told them to do this. This is part of the plan. But it was never the solution. He says every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away. Sins. The priests would come out They would get the animal There would be a confession They would take it to the altar They would slaughter it The blood would run They would go back out to the people Who were in a line They would take the animal They would go back after confession They would slaughter it And the blood would run And back and forth And back and forth The sins of the people Were covered with blood But they were never taken away They were never taken away He says, every priest stands doing this all day. That's why there were no chairs. Only one day off, six days a week, 365 days a year. Year after year after year after year after year. Blood flowed continually, though it never accounted. It never atoned for sin. And he says, but this man, verse 12, but this man. Some of you have been dragging sin in and out, in and out. You come to church, you leave. Do I take it with? Do I leave? How do I leave? What do I do? The sermon wasn't on topic. It wasn't what I'm thinking about. It didn't address what I'm struggling with. Back and forth, back and forth. What do I do? I need to be better this week. I need to be better next week. I need to be better this month. I need to be better come January 1. I need to be better. I need to be better. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus is better. He says, this man after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever sat down at the right hand of god he rested jesus's current posture is sitting why because it's been complete it's finished the gospel is unfolding We live under grace. We live under a better ministry with a higher priest. We we live under better covenant. We live under better promise. And the gospel is unfolding. And I don't even want you to end here. It says this. It says, from the time, from that time, waiting. It says, Jesus is waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Some of you need to know the very real reality that Jesus is coming back. This is not but a religion that you adhere to until you die. This is about an active, ongoing, evolving gospel, though it's been signed, sealed, and delivered by the work on the cross. It is not complete yet. Jesus is coming back, and I can't wait, to be honest, I can't wait till he comes to smash sex traffickers. I can't wait till he comes to smash The decrepit things that we see going on in this world. Jesus literally comes back and he leads the army. He doesn't sit behind it like most generals. He's out in front of it, on a horse, in a robe. He goes back to the mountain that he ascended from and he breaks it in half and he says, I'm here to stay this time. And says that he makes his enemies his footstool. It doesn't mean we don't work for justice now, but you need to know that ultimately justice will be completed. Rest in that. He says, until they are made his footstool, verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected those who are being sanctified. For those of you that are in Christ, though you're being sanctified, you need to know that God sees you as perfect. How do those live together? You need to know for those of you that are in Christ, though you are still being, though we are still being sanctified, we are becoming more like Jesus. In Christ, God already sees you as perfect. One more evidence that he pours out love on his kids. It's better now. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that it's better. Profoundly and simply, thank you that it's better. Thank you that we need not come here, though some of us still do, myself included, attempting to cover our sin. But we come here to the reality, the heavenly reality, that you alone have taken our sin. I pray relief for those that are here tonight. I pray a a washing of the Holy Spirit that, that leaves us feeling clean in you. A love that makes us cling to you. That it's your kindness that leads us to repent of the things that are against you. And that you'd stir in us a heart that longs to worship you. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for fulfilling the old covenant. We thank you for establishing the new covenant. We thank you that you are a great high priest that we can speak to tonight, that we can sing to tonight, that we can love for eternity because you first loved us. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for what you've done, what you're doing, for what you still have yet to do, for your glory. Amen.